<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win best. Oh picture. god, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we discuss a movie we've all seen, our week in entertainment, and an artist whose career we'd like to put in focus. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And before we get into the episode, I want to give a quick description about our Patreon page. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for artists and creators to get paid. So, we've created a page and membership level that allows fans of Talk Movie to Me to contribute monthly to the podcast and in turn get access to special content. From now on, the majority of our quote-unquote special episodes, for example, Christmas, most anticipated of the year, our Oscar special, and more, will only be available to Patreon members. In addition to that, all of our episodes from seasons one and two, which is about 50 episodes, are now also only available to Patreon members. So if you like Talk Movie to Me and you want to show your support and get access to as much content as possible, become a patron. Uh, Monthly membership is only $3 a month, although that is in US dollars, so it's actually like $4 Canadian. That is my little pitch for our Patreon page. Awesome. That is great, Helen. This week, we are checking into the loony bin. Are they going to drug us up with pills, burn and freeze us with some sadistic hydrotherapy? Is it straight jackets all around? One can't be sure what's real and what's not. So does the new Netflix series Ratchet rot our brains with an ill-conceived lobotomy? Or is it just what the doctor ordered? <laughs> this week, since movie theaters are still not a thing, we decided to focus on the much-hyped new miniseries from Ryan Murphy, Ratchet. A pseudo-origin story of the infamous nurse Ratchet from the classic film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. In this show, Sarah Paulson plays Nurse Ratchet, and the story aims to reveal who this character is and how she became that way. Also starring are Judy Davis, Finn Whitrock, John John Briones, Sofio Canedo, Cynthia Nixon, and Amanda Plummer, with a couple of scenery-chewing guest appearances by Vincent D'Onofrio and Sharon Stone. Ratchet asks Mm. the question, who is Mildred Ratchet? And also, how many doctors are actually required to run a psychiatric hospital? (laughs) All good questions. (laughs) Helen, first impression. Okay. Once I saw Sarah Paulson driving that mint green Ford coupe and that hat and those sunglasses and those bright red gloves, I was like, okay, I'm in. Oh, yes, ma'am. Sinclair, (laughs) first impression. First impression for me, well, this crazed murderer looks like an Abercrombie and Fitch model, so we must be in the Ryan Murphy universe. My crap radar is going off full force, and I'm already wondering how I'm going to get through eight episodes. Oh, my God. Wow. (laughs) So you just hated it right off the bat then? Instantly. Oh, my God. You know, Sinclair, you really do yourself a disservice when you're like that. (laughs) First impression. Speaking of doing a disservice, we'll get into uh, Ratchet. (laughs) First impression for me. So it opens with this establishment of Edmund Tolleson as the priest murderer. And I think it's an effectively horrifying opening that wouldn't be out of place on any of the American Horror Story series. 
it does firmly put us into that Ryan Murphy world. And I love that. I also think it is establishing the campy tone of the series and that lush, lush visual design. So at this point, I am very excited to see what comes next. Since this is a classic film character, Nurse Ratchet, why don't we start with the storytelling element of this? Sinclair, I feel like you are jumping at the bit. I mean, I'm completely exhausted from Ratchet. <laughs> because to be, to be fair, I mean, I have been complaining about this for a solid about oh. week and a half. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're exhausted. Yes. We're fucking exhausted. Yeah, well, I'm exhausted. It. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's funny because we generally try to not talk about our opinions before we record, but I actually despised this so much that I had to just get my feelings out, you know? Mm. So unfortunately, you guys have been hearing about this for a while. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, storytelling, I, I think it's unfortunate that this show used the character of Mildred Ratchet and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as a launching pad because it really doesn't have any intention of capturing the themes, relevance, shedding any interesting light on a very famous character. And I really think that the name Ratchet was used to just draw interest um, with its familiar name. I can't, I love this show, but I kind of can't disagree with that. I think this series only works from a storytelling perspective, if you intentionally disconnect it from the established Nurse Ratchet canon. Like, I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest not too long ago when we featured Nicholson uh, last season on our In Focus segment. And that's an amazing movie, obviously. It won all the major Oscars, Best Director, Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Actress for Louise Fletcher in a leading role. Mm -hmm. She played that part of Nurse Ratchet. It's an indelible performance that turned that character into an iconic villain. And you're right. There's like none of that in this. It is a. To it feels like a totally different thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I uh, shamefully have not seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I need to rectify that. So I didn't go into this having that opinion. Therefore, I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is sort of reflective of who this character is, or we're getting mm. her backstory. Although, Sinclair, you... Uh, informed me today that I didn't need to watch it because this show has nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah, you should probably not even put them in the same category. That <laughs> all. <laughs> okay, so I will say that the storytelling in this series is quite haphazard. I haven't really watched American Horror Story or any of the other Ryan Murphy productions, so there was a part of me that was just like, I guess this is just the way that he tells stories. And I didn't let it bother me all that much. Like, I basically just took the series and was like, okay, it's campy, it's absurd, it's, you know, over the top. It doesn't always totally match, but I don't know. It didn't bother me all that much. It bothered some other people. <laughs> it did. I think that you saying that it was haphazard is being very generous. I think this was really bad writing and it was bad storytelling and it was a missed opportunity to do something interesting with one of the world's most famous literary villains and one of the best film villains and most famous film villains. I had a huge problem with the writing on this show. And I, I can't even be diplomatic about it. I thought it was unintelligent. I thought it was superficial. I thought it was lazy. I thought it was exploitive and overall served zero purpose. And it was clear from the very beginning that this show favored aesthetics over substance. Mm. I mean, sure. I will argue that there was substantial story here. Uh, I think that 
really this is a story about how trauma begets more trauma and that the only way to break that cycle is to forgive those who inflicted the trauma on you forgive yourself for carrying it forward and then be brave enough to like face the honest truth of who you are who you want to be and work towards building that life for yourself that was the like arc of nurse ratchet in this and i will also argue that the characters were given a lot to work with and were given dynamic personalities and dynamic histories even Edmund, he wasn't strictly bad. He had right. a particular moral compass where he was really seeking some sort of validation that he's not a purely evil person. Like he kept giving in to his homicidal urges, yes. But I think he was hopeful that there might be a way to like fix himself. And mm. there's that one scene in the barn when he like slowly approaches the horse after Nurse Bucket tells him that the horses can read a man's true character. And he's absolutely terrified of the horse's judgment and you can feel it. I thought that was like really powerful and oddly cathartic. The horse didn't like recoil or bray and he felt some sense of redemption. And that was just one tiny, tiny, tiny little scene of this whole character. And that's one character of a million different things. I get it. Like, I think like most Ryan Murphy series from Glee to American Horror Story to Hollywood, there's so many different storylines happening simultaneously. Some of them do get short shafted, but I don't, agree with your assessment Sinclair I definitely disagree with your assessment especially about trauma I think this show exploited trauma I think it used trauma as a motivator for characters to do unjustifiable things which I think is completely unfair and to be honest this has been a problem in the past and it shouldn't be happening in 2020 people with mental health issues or any sort of disorder are usually misrepresented in film and television asylums are usually used to evoke feelings of horror because the mistreatment of patients was very real and it was very unorthodox and I think this was a chance to challenge the way we see these institutions in some way or maybe see another side of what went down in these institutions and the people conducting these types of inhumane methods but instead this was used for shock value and melodrama and to sit and watch attractive characters I fuck each other and that's disappointing I don't know I fall somewhere in the middle (laughs) because I can agree with some of what you're saying Sinclair but I do think that there were these moments like you say Edison of Redemption or where we see characters register that like these methods are inhumane you don't do this to a gay person and put them into a scalding bath and then put them into a freezing cold bath and like till their skin is like falling off of their body like right so they're showing these things while worrying about if the wallpaper matched the towels on the countertop well, like this I don't stuff know if that's really irritating. Okay, but I, I, I know, but I disagree with that too, Sinclair. Like, so you're saying it only becomes exploitative of the trauma because they've spent so much attention to the detail of the production design? I think the attention to the detail was where the focus was and the trauma was an afterthought. I think that the scene, especially where they revealed her abuse, I thought that was really exploitive. It was just an excuse to do a visually pleasing puppet show. And since it's told through a puppet show, that doesn't really leave Sarah Paulson with a chance to shine and be able to perform her monologue about abuse. So we had to sit through another scene of her telling Cynthia Nixon the entire story again. You know, it it felt to me like, you know, got to let her earn that Emmy moment. It just Mm. felt exploitive to me. I mean, we can definitely agree that there is an element of shock value here, as there is in almost all of his series. That is something that is present constantly. He 
always explores sex, sexual taboo, characters, sort of sexual hangups. There's something fetishistic about sex and all of these like pseudo horror Ryan Murphy series. This is no different. We see Ratchet enacting her own kinky fantasy moments with the detective. We see the like lust that comes with dangerous sex between Nurse Dolly and Edmund. But Edison, the problem is that nothing in this show made sense. Character motivations were not believable. They were completely unjustifiable. Every character intention was motivated by the actor coming in and flexing their overacting chops. It was like parts were written specifically for Ryan Murphy to bring in actors he liked and just give them a big monologue and a moment. I there disagree. Was, there was, I believed yeah. Nurse Ratchet. I there, I thought she was trying to find personal redemption and assuage her guilt by rescuing her brother Edmund. I found no. that mostly mm-hmm. believable. They essentially turned the character of Ratchet that represents the abuse of power by authority, which is incredibly timely right now, and reduced those ideas to superficial nothingness. Ratchet is an authority figure that mistreats the vulnerable. She represents a mistreatment of people who had no one in their corner and were completely at her mercy. That's what makes her so scary. What makes a person give themselves over to that kind of power and abuse it? Why wasn't this explored for real? Why well, did she they... have these sadistic tendencies? There's actually so much to this type of person that could have been explored. And instead, we have someone who was motivated by her serial killer brother. They were abused when they were younger. She was a closeted lesbian. This is just soap opera drama. It does not challenge anything. To go to your point, Sinclair, about Nurse Ratchet as portrayed in the Cuckoo's Nest film, that character represents the corruption of institutionalized power, whereas this iteration of Nurse Ratchet represents being the victim of the that institutional power. No, the, this Ratchet and the characters on this show in the hospital was the equivalent of Joey on Friends playing Dr. Drake Ramore. <laughs> I, I disagree. I disagree. The doctor made absolutely no sense. I don't think they had any idea what to do with him. Why was he the only doctor? Please, somebody tell me that. All the patients looked like rich, well-dressed old people on a high society boat cruise. Not They were. They were movie hospital. stars and stuff. <laughs> the nurse Dolly going downstairs to the fancy dungeon where they kept Edmund and instantly giving him a blowjob. That made no sense. Well, you wouldn't? I liked that moment. No, no. Sharon Stone and her monkey and her son. Please, no. I will not hear anything about Sharon Stone and her monkey. She was Vincent perfect. Vincent D'Onofrio and his Trump tendencies was a complete on-the-nose eye roll. The Charlotte yes. storyline, completely unnecessary. It was an embarrassing representation of people who struggle with schizophrenia. I hated this show. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> but listen, I'm not a Ryan Murphy hater. I loved Nip Tuck. I have to admit, I absolutely love Nip Tuck, but it made sense. Nip but that's Tuck it. Made Did you like Feud? Did you like American Horror Story? Did you like Hollywood? I hated Hollywood. I turned it off after two episodes, which I would have done with this one as well, except we were doing it for the podcast. And it was my idea to do this. <laughs> yeah, what is what? you dug your own grave here. So, OK, yeah. let, let's move on into performances. OK, I fucking loved Sarah Paulson in this. I think that she is so captivating for the moments that were not the greatest in terms of the writing I was still satisfied enough because I enjoyed her performance so much I feel like she has a lot of history to her characters I feel like she knows exactly what she's doing as an actress and I just think she's beautiful and like stoic and she also just looked amazing throughout the whole thing 
I think that she's really cool. I think that she has a, a unique ability to be very austere in one moment and then incredibly mm-hmm. emotional the next. Yeah. And I think that that lent itself to this character as they portrayed her here. She was a nurse ratchet who was someone trying to find her purpose and kind of being fascinated by the dark side of medicine, but also the potentialities of what these new medical practices might bring for the mind in terms of healing like was she a sadistic psychopath maybe but she was also moralistic in her own questionable Mm. way and i thought that sarah paulson played that dance really well yeah speaking of dance why was there a dance that was weird why was there a dance guys i'll I'll give you that why did edmund why was he allowed to go to a dance (laughs) nothing made sense on this show okay no no no. i will give you that Listen, yeah. <laughs> Sarah Paulson, um, I actually really, really love her as an actress. I think she's actually a lot better than some of the things she is in. There was nothing dynamic about this character. It was completely inconsistent from the very beginning. There, this was completely inconsistent, guys. Seriously. Like when you look at even Louise Fletcher, and, I, and I'm going to try to not compare the two. but the You're doing a great thing- job of that. <laughs> <laughs> The scary thing about Nurse Ratchet was how subtle she was and how icy she was and how manipulative she was in a way that went unnoticed a bit. This character was completely taken advantage of and victimized. And to be honest, she was uninteresting. This was all uninteresting. The brother thing, all of this, it was just lame. Just uh, okay, lame. Okay, so... I just disagree. And also that's back to storytelling. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> let that bone go. Listen, I'm, but I want to defend Sarah Paulson by saying I don't think it's her as an actress. I think she is so, so, so wonderful. And I, I feel like she needs to step out of the Ryan Murphy universe and get a lead on an HBO show because she can do better than this. Okay. I also really like Cynthia Nixon. Um <laughs> I think Cynthia Nixon is a fantastic actress and it's so nice to see her in stuff that isn't Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, okay, I had a little bit of like, oh, this lesbian plot line now. Okay, interesting. Didn't really see that coming and doesn't totally fit, but I don't care because I like watching the two of them act together. Um, right, who cares? Let's just pull uh, the blinds over our eyes and... You know, look at some fancy hey, throw you're cut pose. off. You're not allowed to talk anymore. Well, if the blinds are as beautiful as the blinds in this place, happily. Yeah. <laughs> Charlotte, I can't even, I can't even start on Charlotte. Okay. Stop I was, it. I was cringing the whole time. No, you're no. wrong about this. That's the way a person with schizophrenia would be portrayed in a really bad Lifetime movie from the 80s. She I don't, came, I She came in with a performance like Jennifer Hudson in Cats. Just flexing. <laughs> no. No, look, no, I disagree. Sophia Canedo, she is playing five different characters. This is a big ask of an actor. And in a series like this, which is just pure, pulpy, camp melodrama, she knew what mm-hmm. she was in. I except think it would making have been, it authentic. I think that she would have been an absolute... You're cut off. I think it would <laughs> be an absolute error on her part to try and play this straight. She went very large with the characterizations. 
Obviously, it's not going to be to everyone's taste. It can seem very like capital A actory, but I thought her choices were actually fantastic. And I found the five characters she played to be utterly distinct from one another. Her physicality was so on point. She didn't even have to say a line and you could tell whether she was the meek Charlotte Wells or the braggadocious Olympian Apollo or Ondine Touquette, world-renowned musician who played first chair (laughs) violin for the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. It's Sinclair, a... you are nothing. Less than nothing. <laughs> I am less than nothing. Um, I thought I she was just, fabulous. I could just hear the casting crew when they called cut after a scene, just slow clapping. Wow. <laughs> that was some You're good acting. Get that Emmy nomination. Uh, okay, the last person that I liked was Alice Englert, who played Nurse Dolly. I actually oh. really loved her in this. No, come on. You. Oh, my God. You're You're starting to piss me off. I thought that she was, I, first of all, I've never seen her in anything before. And I was like, who is this like saucy manx? Yeah, yes. I thought I she really was great too. I really liked her. Yeah. Also, I, I'm sorry to say it and I don't care, but I fucking loved every single instant that Sharon Stone was on screen in this series. Yeah. She is perfect for this. It's so she over is. the top. She's so fucking grand. Uh, all she has to do is just sit there and uh, with her goddamn monkey and all of that opulence. And I was just screaming, you are a lady of luxury. You own everything. Everything is yours. I lived for her. Okay, I'm going to say something positive now, if that's okay with you what? guys. I actually love some of the diva actresses in this. I love Judy Davis. Amanda Plummer is the actual best. It was so nice to see her on screen. Sharon Stone. I think Cynthia Nixon is great. I think these are all wonderful women. They are fabulous. I just wish that this show was better for them. You connected to Amanda Plummer because that is the character you most closely relate to. <laughs> I also well, I also did like Nurse Bucket a lot. Nurse I just, Bucket was I, just, real, I think yeah. she just had a change of uh, heart that just wasn't justified. It wasn't earned at all, and that's not. I did. I did Judy find Davis her change of heart fault. kind of odd. Yeah, it was completely weird. Okay, well, let's go into some technical elements. Maybe we can agree on that, guys. You think? Maybe. Never. So. Never has crazy been so damn beautiful. I the real star of the show is undoubtedly the glorious technical elements. It is. Particularly the production design from Judy Becker gives us some of the most like breathtakingly realized visual storytelling, intensely saturated color palettes and spectacular set pieces I can think of in a TV series. It's like jaw-droppingly elaborate, comprehensive and fucking gorgeous. Mhm. I was so enthralled by the wardrobe and the set deck and the art direction and the hair and the makeup. Like I just, it was eye candy. I just couldn't stop watching it. And I really, it really gave the show a sense, well, definitely a sense of style, but also an atmosphere. And I was like, I want to be driving that old car. I want to have like perfect hair, perfect lipstick, a perfect hat, her snakeskin or alligator skin luggage. Like it was just... So much. Sublime. So decadent. Okay, Sinclair. I mean, my, my my first note here is I don't want to hear about how beautiful this show is and how nice the art decoration is because it made no sense. The art decoration and the costuming was just a giant circle jerk. Why did this hospital look like a New York boutique hotel? Who Please cares? tell me this. Why would you have the hospital look like this matched with a storyline of a hospital lacking funding? The set decoration should work with the story where Ratchet, it works against the story. It makes everything that is being said by the characters less credible. I absolutely, completely, vehemently disagree with you. The set deck would have been working against the story if they were doing a very serious 
type of story like the original One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That is not what this was. Ryan Murphy wanted this hospital not to be a hospital, to look like a glamorous hotel that had been converted into a hospital. That is what Judy Becker said herself. The kind of hotel that movie stars used to go to that had been then turned into a hospital. So it had that air of like Northern California glamour. Why the hell would you have dialogue in this show that talks about this hospital's struggle with lack of funding? It, that it wasn't maybe... about a struggle of lack of funding until the governor threatened to pull out the funding. But do you actually think they would have the funds to make this hospital look that way? You're looking at this as being having to be such an authentic, realistic thing, and that's not what the show is. That's, that's not, not what this what is. This is. is camp. But but Nip Tuck is camp. Lavishness. It's lavishness. It's color, colors. It's ostentatious. But it made sense because they were plastic surgeries in in Miami. You can't just do whatever you want in something to have it these make are, no these sense are glamorous. and expect us to just yeah. But these act are like glamorous movie stars ex-movie stars, performers with money, spending a lot of money, presumably, for the latest innovation in medical advancements for mental health. Presumably, these treatments are going to be very expensive, which would be funding this Lux Hospital in fucking California. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, an underfunded psychiatric hospital shouldn't look like Flamingo Estates. Like, I'm sorry, Edison, you can't have a lobotomy and go on a wine tour at the same time. You Sorry. can if that lobotomy is cutting edge and incredibly expensive. It makes the story <laughs> not credible. No, it I disagree with you completely. It makes these themes and these issues not credible. It turns it into a joke. High camp melodrama, wonderful exploratory adventure. All right, what is the last <laughs> word, Helen? Is Ratchet a masterpiece? No. <laughs> is it fun eye candy with some entertaining performances and a salacious plot? Yes. Sinclair, stop being a hater. I wrote was that, that in your notes because he knew I would yes. be hating. <laughs> yes. Sinclair, what's the last word for you? Last word for me. I have no idea why you two liked this. I think that you really need to maybe just take some time and reevaluate your taste. I think oh this was God. a dumpster fire that used a well-known classic story as a launching pad to put nothing worthwhile out into the ether. And I just pray that Netflix and Ryan Murphy don't get their hands on To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> okay, the last word for me is that this was high camp fabulosity and it was fun. I do think that some portion of your storytelling criticism is fair, Sinclair, but none of that prevented me from thoroughly enjoying the series. And now that it's been confirmed for season two, I will absolutely be looking forward to binge watching that with the same enthusiasm that I did this. Yeah, we can have a viewing party, Edison. Yeah. You can come, Sinclair. No, she's (laughs) uninvited for sure. Sorry, I'm social distancing. Each week, we challenge ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme. This week's theme is Just What the Doctor Ordered. This is our week in entertainment. Helen, what movie did you pick this week? No, I don't want to go first. You go first. Okay, okay I'll go first. Uh, <laughs> my film this week is Tarsem's sophomore feature film, The Fall, from 2006. This film is set once upon a time in L.A. and stars Lee Pace as Roy Walker, a Hollywood movie stuntman who broke his back on the set of a film and whose girlfriend left him for that film's leading man. He's recovering in this hospital, beautiful hospital, completely bereft of any will to live. 
when he meets five-year-old Alexandria, played by newcomer Katinka Udentaru. She's in the hospital because she broke her arm when she fell while helping her mother pick oranges. She's very, very young. Her accent is very, very thick. But she tells him that her family fled their home country in Eastern Europe after war took her father and her home. Have you either of you seen this film? I have not. Yes, this is definitely a favorite. Yeah. Okay, so they become unlikely friends. And Roy begins telling her this fantastical adventure story of six men who find themselves stranded together on a deserted island. There's the black bandit, a mystic, an Italian explosive expert, a former slave, an Indian prince, and Charles Darwin, accompanied by his partner in science, a monkey named Wallace. All these characters have in common is their desire to seek revenge on the man who has wronged each of them, Governor Odious. So this film has a sort of action-adventure, old-school fantasy feel to it. It's very like Time Bandits meets The Princess Bride. But... Ooh, love it. There's a real dark, like, heart here, too. It's ultimately a story about Roy trying to find a reason to live. At one point, he convinces Alexandria to get him a jar of morphine pills, telling her that it's his medicine to help him sleep. But really, he's just trying to kill himself. Mm. And so he takes a ton of them while still telling her this story and passes out. Um, But somehow he survives. And then, like, when he wakes up, he's finds out he's still living he explodes in grief and rage and it's actually really harrowing and hmm. and you can see how like scary it is for alexandria who we have to remember is she's five years so old cute she's so and cute. so impossibly cute her yeah. arm is broken and it's up in this cast it's like kind of up by her shoulder and she speaks so like and and when i went to the plate and you went to go there. You can't really understand anything she's saying, but she's so adorable. Lee Pace is actually really solid here. He's got he's kind so of a good. unique, like, leading man energy. It, it makes me wonder why he's never really had that big of a career. Yeah. Like, he's certainly extremely handsome. And in this film, he and Katinka and Taru have, like, a wonderfully sweet chemistry. Hmm. She is especially adorable. Uh, though, like, like I said, I did have to have the subtitles on through a lot of her dialogue because it's, like, indecipherable. <laughs> But, okay, let's be real. As is expected with Tarsem, the highlights of this film are the dazzling visuals. Yeah. It is just one jaw-dropping set piece after another. At the beginning, he's telling a story about Alexander the Great and his, like, dwindled army. It takes place in a desert, and it is incomprehensibly stunning. Yeah. Then there's a labyrinth of despair that, like, takes your breath away. The sets and the locations are spectacular. This movie is working really, really hard to show us the, like, full power and potential of visual storytelling Mm. and it's no coincidence that it reminds me of one of my favorite films of all time ron frick's 1992 masterpiece baraka 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 because (laughs) tarsum is clearly heavily influenced by that film to the point that he literally recreates one of the scenes from baraka virtually frame by frame in this film which i oh wow did had no idea like i had totally forgotten that until i rewatched this film this week Overall, I I feel like it's a cool premise, but you realize that the fantasy world that we're seeing is actually the vision of Alexandria's imagination. Mm -hmm. So the characters in that part of the story are drawn with about as much depth as you'd expect from a Mm five-year-old. Okay. And unfortunately, that does give that part a bit of a like style over substance quality for me in the end. Mm -hmm. But 
the style is just such an achievement that it is completely worth the watch. And the other narrative going on is actually re- really real and powerful. So there's a I lot love of heart in this film too. There's a there's there, definitely so much heart. There definitely is. There's a lot of heart, and I I like absolutely recommend it. The new Lady Gaga video. 911, yes. Looks like this movie. Well, he directed it. Oh, really? Did that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. That's freaking awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, well, this is very the fall when I was watching (laughs) it. Absolutely. That's so cool. See, she's so cool. I know. She is really cool. We love Gaga. We love Gaga. Um, Okay, (laughs) Helen, what did you pick? Okie dokie. So I decided to watch Awakenings from 1990. Oh, Robin Williams. Yeah. Listen, love Robin Williams. I love Robin Williams with like my entire heart and soul. I will watch him in anything and I will love him in everything. Mm-hmm. So this movie stars Robin Williams and Robert De Niro and it is directed by Penny Marshall. Have either of you seen this? Yes. I have not seen this. Oh, but did you know that Penny Marshall also directed The Preacher's Wife? Another story about an angel <laughs> playing by Denzel Washington and starring Whitney Houston. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> Okay, so Awakenings tells the true story of Dr. Malcolm Sayer, played by Robin Williams. The doctor's actual name was Oliver Sacks. He is a neurologist who gets a job in a Brooklyn psychiatric hospital where he starts treating a bunch of patients who are basically in a catatonic state. He discovers that what all of these patients have in common is that they all had encephalitis lethargica in the 1920s. And he decides to give an experimental treatment to Leonard Lowe, played by Robert De Niro, and the results are miraculous. Hmm. It starts off a little bit clunky and slow, a little like, okay, 90s drama. Is this going to be good or is it going to flop? The actual true story of this is remarkable and what these patients experienced and what this doctor was able to do like these people were vegetables basically they Mm. were in their wheelchairs they didn't speak nothing like they would just sit there but then he realized that they had reflexes like he could throw a baseball and they would catch it Mm-hmm. And so he realized that there's still something going on. He decides to treat them with Lovodopa, which is essentially a dopamine treatment that is used for Parkinson's patients. And it brings these people back to life. They essentially wake up from like being in a coma and they don't realize that 20 years of their lives have gone by. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Yeah, it's terrifying. And then it eventually stops working and then they all revert back to their catatonic oh god i can't were you crying were you sobbing i actually didn't cry and i'm surprised i didn't cry because i was like this should be making me cry (laughs) maybe i just wasn't in a cryy mood but it brought up a few different thoughts with myself one of them being we don't know what the long-term effects of COVID 19 are going to be for people Mm -hmm. because this was encephalitis which was an epidemic in the 20s and then some people developed this like statue state from it and then the other thing that is a tragic fact about this is that the treatment of Lavodapa that Robin Williams character is giving to these patients is actually the treatment that he got for his Parkinson's like symptoms right before he died mm. so in a very tragic way of life imitating art mm-hmm. I guess yeah um but 
the story just completely fascinated me and neurology is fascinating Mm -hmm. and all the different things that the brain can do anyway this is a beautiful movie it was actually nominated for best picture and best actor for De Niro and it is currently on Netflix and I would highly recommend it cool okay Sinclair what about you okay I watched a movie called Coma from 1978. Hmm. So I guess we're going from catatonic state to more catatonic states. Yeah. <laughs> it's a movie directed by Michael Crichton. I've mostly been familiar with Michael Crichton Michael as an Crichton, author. Michael Crichton, the author? Yeah. So Michael Crichton's the author, um, just in case anybody doesn't know, of Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. Um, oh. Sphere. He also wrote and directed the movie Westworld, which was the inspiration for the, the TV show. Oh, crazy. Yeah, I definitely feel like he is a better writer than he is a director. I've been on a bit of a Michael Crichton kick lately, and I watched the original Westworld, and I definitely have some thoughts about that. Uh, And I thought I would watch Coma as well. This movie stars Michael Douglas and a really lovely French actress, Jean-Vierre Bouchot. Ed Harris has an appearance in this, and it's a very small role, but he has a full head of blonde hair. I was very surprised. <laughs> 1978. <laughs> Quick synopsis via IMDb. When a young female doctor notices an unnatural amount of comas occurring in her hospital, she uncovers a horrible conspiracy. No. What actually, yeah, what actually drew me to this film was uh, some of the visuals. When I looked at some of the screenshots, there were people in comas hanging from strings that were attached to the ceiling, and it really reminded me of the movie The Cell. Obviously, mm. we were just yeah. discussing this director, but when Jennifer Lopez goes into someone's mind, she hangs from the ceiling from these strings. So this could have been an inspiration oh, yeah. for that. So I was immediately drawn to this. The biggest star in this film is actually Michael Douglas, but the movie really focuses on Dr. Susan Wheeler, who notices that people are going in for routine surgery and then ending up in a coma. So this happens Hmm. to her best friend in the film. She goes in for a very uh, easy procedure and she ends up in a coma. And so, you know, Susan's alarm bells are going off and she begins to investigate and notices that this has been a trend that's going on and she starts ruffling the feathers of higher-up surgeons and head of departments and men basically they're all men (laughs) and Mm. I find that this is such a a trope that happens in in psychological thrillers sometimes where the more a female character unravels the more she's gaslighted by men for being emotional Right. These types of films, I always laugh because whenever it's a female character, she's uncovering something. Her sanity is always questioned. God. (laughs) And men are always saying you're being hysterical. And that's exactly what happens in this. There's so many plot holes in this film. I think that if a bunch of healthy people were going into comas all the time, it would be kind of hard to cover up, you would think. (laughs) But not, not in this film. And Michael Douglas plays her boyfriend and a fellow doctor, and he... He's always saying that she should be more emotional and to open up to their love. And she's always too rigid. And then she's also being told that she's too emotional. And it's like, what is a woman to do? <laughs> I just Seriously. I just don't know. I'll give a little spoiler alert if anyone plans on watching this. 
Um, I'm going to talk about what they're actually doing here. So just skip forward if you want to. But basically, she discovers that patients are being induced into comas with carbon monoxide, and it leaves them in a vegetative state at the hospital. And there's a bunch of doctors in on this, and they're being sent to this weird institution called the Jefferson Institute that keeps the coma patients on those strings they're hanging from the ceiling and they're harvesting their organs and selling them on the black market. Jeez. Uh, okay. <laughs> Wait, how are they getting away with that? Are the families of the people in coma this is, they just like, oh, they're in a coma now. Plot like, holes. <laughs> okay. There's just so many plot holes. <laughs> they're like, yeah, they're in a coma, yeah. so sure, just take them wherever yeah. you want. It's fine. <laughs> The best part is she goes and tells Michael Douglas all the things that she's seen. And he's just like, it's okay. Just go take a nap. You'll feel better oh after God. you have a nap. Just lie down. <laughs> like it's, you crazy emotional woman. You're, you're being emotional. Is he so, in on it? He's actually not in on it, surprisingly. But you do question if he is or isn't. And the evil head surgeon ends up putting Dr. Susan Wheeler into surgery. And... He wants to make her comatose. And Michael Douglas just finally figures it out. And he disconnects the hidden carbon monoxide machine. She wakes up and the police are there. So this woman basically spends the whole movie trying to get people to believe her that something's going on. And it takes Michael Douglas two seconds to come join in as the hero and well, get yes. the police. And the nobody, nobody questions him. It's just fixed. Right. Yeah. Problems fixed. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, if you like psychological thrillers from the 70s, you may enjoy this. Yeah, I definitely think Michael Crichton is a better author than he is a director. He d- makes some very strange directing choices. It's it's a good thing he didn't direct Jurassic Park, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, my God. But this one, it, it is fun to watch, if you can ignore the plot holes. So now it's time for our In Focus segment. Each week, we pick an artist and take a look at their filmography and break down the projects and moments that made them the fascinating creatives that they are today. So join us while we explore the career of a blonde-haired charmer who rocketed onto the Hollywood scene faster than you can say Lightning McQueen. After some successful comedies, this actor's career seems to have no escape from that frat pack reputation, but we can't deny that he's Hansel, so hot right now. (laughs) <laughs> so whether you want to Shanghai noon with this Southern gentleman and take him home to meet the parents or Shanghai nights with this Texan stud and Arma get it on with his anaconda, his, <laughs> mystique, <laughs> his mystique will keep you guessing and make you full of wonder. So pour yourself a martini and let's hit the jazz clubs in Paris at midnight because I spy with my little eye that we're about to put the career of Owen Wilson in focus. Yeah. Get it on with his anaconda. Oh my I, god. I honestly totally forgot that he was an anaconda. I also I forgot totally too. forgot that he was an anaconda. <laughs> and Armageddon. <laughs> Owen Wilson is a Texas stud. Him and his brother Luke Wilson both got their start in Wes Anderson's first feature film, Bottle Rocket, which mm-hmm. Owen Wilson co wrote with him. They met in a screenwriting class. Yeah. Their creative romance bloomed. And this is based on a short film of the same name that they wrote together in 1993. The short shot in black and white, and it it feels very Wes Anderson and if Kevin Smith and Wes Anderson made a short together. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is such a fascinating story because, yeah, Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson met at the University of Texas in this screenwriting class, decided to... They came up with the story. Initially, they were trying to write something that was 
Scorsese-esque, like mm-hmm. making it a heist film, and then both realize like, oh, we're not those writers. <laughs> right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a very like babbling dialogue, but that's the charm of it. And so, yeah, they made this the short film, and then Columbia Pictures just picked it up and greenlit a feature for them. Like, must be nice, frick. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, did you just say Frick? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I said Frick. Yeah. <laughs> well, something that's really interesting about Bottle Rocket is that this is Wes Anderson's feature film debut. And, like, yeah. though it definitely has some of his quirkiness and absurdity that would become like a requisite characteristic of his work hereafter. There's very little of that Wes Anderson, like, signature whimsical style of direction mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Even in Rushmore, which came out just a couple of years later, we're seeing more attention paid to, like, the specifics of the set detailing and seeing him, like, always frame the action center of the screen. These are elements of his directing style that, like, crystallize in Tenenbaums and we see in every film mm-hmm. thereafter. But it's not really mm-hmm. in this one. Yeah, with Bottle Rocket, you're just seeing the subtle beginning of his style emerging. Like you're mm-hmm. seeing the dry dialogue, the musical choices, like the right. randomness of plots. This Bottle Rocket is a strange little film. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a bit all over I like the place it. too, yeah. um, but it it definitely is unique. Also, I think it kind of gives us a glimpse of Owen Wilson's movie star archetype. He's a happy slacker, a sort of sensitive, <laughs> yeah. nice guy who like finds himself in over his head, but has enough aw shucks, charm, confidence, and like rugged determination to make it through. And I love that he co-wrote this because it reveals to me an actor who understands his niche in the movies yes. right from the word go. And I think that's yeah. a huge part of why he's had such a successful career thereafter. Yeah, it's yeah. weird. It's, it is weird because you can see the Wilson brothers archetypes forming and how their careers went in the direction that they did. It's really Mm -hmm. clear who each one of them represents. Like Luke is a lot more understated and he has a softer side. And I feel like Owen is definitely more charismatic out of the two and his career, I feel went more commercial than Luke's did. I feel like he, Mm -hmm. he had way more leading man roles in bigger films. Oh yeah. So let's get into his big three. What's first up? As we've been mentioning, he has this partnership with Wes Anderson. They co-wrote Bottle Rocket. They co-wrote Rushmore. And they co-wrote The Royal Tenenbaums from 2001. I'm going to be honest, you guys. I had no idea that Owen Wilson co-wrote those films until today. Really? (laughs) Yeah, and I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't know that. Um, I adore The Royal Tenenbaums. It's probably my favorite Wes Anderson movie. The film revolves around the Tenenbaum family, and they are somewhat based off of the Glass family that J.D. Salinger writes about in a lot of his books. And that is part of why I adore this so much, because I really love J.D. Salinger. I love Franny and Zoe, which heavily influenced this movie in the sense that they are these prodigy children that are kind of having these existential crises and are quite privileged but are very depressed and somehow it's not pretentious. The character work in this is just so fantastic. This is probably my favorite performance by Gwyneth Paltrow, to be honest. She's so wonderful Mm -hmm. here as Margot. Playing Margot, I know. And Owen Wilson plays Eli Cash, who is the neighbor of the Tenenbaum family, and he becomes this somewhat famous author and ends up having an affair with Margot, but he's also Richie's best friend, played by Luke Wilson. And Richie's in love with Margot, which is weird because she's his sister, but she was adopted, so it's okay. <laughs> but he 
plays this quirky, aloof, deadpan character so well. This movie is really special, for lack of a better word, and I feel like it gives you an insight into, I mean, obviously into the films of Wes Anderson and what they will go on to be, but also to just, I feel like, the weird brain that Owen Wilson has. Yeah. (laughs) Because this is half his story, you know? Yes. And the last thing I'll say about Royal Tenenbaums is it was actually nominated for Best Screenplay. So Owen Wilson does have an Oscar nomination, which I also didn't know until today. (laughs) That's awesome. All right, guys. Next up on the big three, I just can't. The film is 2008's Marley and Me, starring Owen Wilson and Jennifer Aniston, and of course, the dog, Marley. The dog. I can't. No. The plot is they're a happy couple. They decide to get a golden Labrador puppy. They name him Marley. He's an absolute untrainable whirlwind Tasmanian devil of a dog, just bringing destruction and misbehavior. But of course, he's also got a pure sweetheart. Can't help but love him. There's like so much physical comedy coming from the antics of Marley and the situations that Owen and Jen find themselves in because of him. And through having this dog, they like end up learning all kinds of life lessons about each other and themselves. It's a, I just saw this movie, guys. Yeah, it's it's a tearjerker, that's yeah. for sure. But you don't know this movie is going to be a tearjerker, and a lot of True. it has to do with the fact that it's Owen Wilson and Jennifer mm-hmm. Aniston, and the movies that they were putting out at the time were more slapsticky comedies or romantic comedies. So you have no idea when you go into Marley and Me that it's going to be as poignant and mm-hmm. lovely and devastating as it is it's just such a beautiful fucking movie jennifer aniston and owen wilson have really good chemistry Mm -hmm. i totally believe them as a couple i love jennifer aniston so much she is just so good and i will never forget when i saw this film in theaters the first time it was one of these classic moments where like near the end of the film you know waterworks are happening but the the audience is like (laughs) silent and you can Mm. almost feel everyone holding their breath holding it in and then finally one person you hear one person who can't hold it in any longer (laughs) six rows in front go (laughs) and then everybody in the whole theater it gives the permission and then it's just a goddamn waterworks weeping fest everybody (laughs) like ugly crying and that, I, when I rewatched this movie this week, again, my poor boyfriend, who not only has to endure me screaming bloody murder when I watch a horror film, but sitting here blubbering like a lunatic, weeping, watching Marley and me. Oh. Did he cry? No, he just laughed at me sobbing. <laughs> yeah. It was also a huge hit. It made $256 million at the box office worldwide. Massive, massive success for Owen Wilson. So the third film that we chose is Midnight in Paris from 2011, directed by Woody Allen, who I know we've had our issues with Woody Allen before, but he just keeps popping up here and there on the podcast. (laughs) This movie stars Owen Wilson, Marianne Cotillard, Rachel McAdams, and just a star-studded cast in general. Quick synopsis, while on a trip to Paris with his fiancée's family, a nostalgic screenwriter finds himself mysteriously going back to the 1920s every day at midnight. 
this was a really interesting role for Owen Wilson. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely more of a critically acclaimed film. He doesn't have a lot of critically acclaimed films on his filmography if you separate him from Wes Anderson. You know, this is really different. Working with Woody Allen was a, definitely a switch up for him. This film mm-hmm. was nominated for four Oscars. It won Best Writing Original Screenplay for Woody Allen. Helen, your favorite. <laughs> and Owen Wilson is really good in this. He kind of works, surprisingly, because he does have that easygoing energy and he seems like someone who would get swept up in the beautiful atmosphere in Paris. Kind of like Edison. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He brings a lot of himself to this role. And I do find that most male lead roles written by Woody Allen, all the actors end up just sounding like a version of Woody Allen. (laughs) And this does happen a little bit, but Owen Wilson has such a strong personality that he's really quite prominent. He shines through. He shines through, yeah. He experiences Paris in the 1920s, so we we get to experience him meeting famous artists from the time. (sighs) Woody Allen. I love this movie so fucking much. Yeah. I know. (laughs) Woody Allen loves to romanticize things. He romanticizes himself. He romanticizes different countries, women, pretty much he everything. He romanticizes his uh, adopted children. <laughs> everything. But it does work in this film because, you know, we do think of other times as the golden age and we never fully live in the present. Gertrude Stein, played by Kathy Bates, really, really great in this film. So yeah. wonderful. She's so good. She just comes out with with these quotes. She says, we all fear death and question our place in the universe. The artist's job is not to succumb to s- despair, but to find an antidote for the emptiness of existence. Oh, like, oh, oh, amen. <laughs> now, Sinclair, take that to the heart when you're going into your fucking yeah. existential nihilistic brain world, okay? <laughs> <laughs> just real. think of Gertrude Stein. I'm going to write down that quote to talk back to you the next time I have to listen to you stare off into the void. Yeah. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald are in this, played by Alison Pill and Tom Hiddleston. But by far my favorite character and portrayal in this is Ernest Hemingway, played by Corey Stahl. He's so, so good. And Adrian Adrian Brody is Salvador Dali, too. So that's oh, yeah, that's right. brilliant. Yes. yes. But in terms of Owen Wilson, Woody Allen has a great quote. He says, Owen is a natural actor. He doesn't sound like he's acting. He sounds like a human being speaking in a situation. And that's very appealing to me. He's got a wonderful funny bone, a wonderful comic instinct that's quite unlike my own, but wonderful of its kind. He's a blonde Texan kind of every man's hero, the kind of Mm. hero of the regiment in the old World War photos with a great flair for being amusing. It's a rare combination, and I thought he'd be great. Yeah. Wow. See, he nailed it. That's exactly Mm -hmm. the Owen Wilson archetype. Yeah, so Midnight in Paris, I do have to admit that this film actually depressed me a little bit watching it because you're watching people living life in jazz clubs and kissing each other on the cheek. And it's so oh, weird God. to watch that right now. So I did have this yeah. this feeling of missing that yes. a lot. You know, just being in a crowded space with the music blaring and... Totally and like, let's be yeah. real. What wouldn't we just all give anything to be in the Roaring Twenties in Paris? Yes, it would be. It would be a good time. <laughs> Edison, what is Owen Wilson's pop culture moment? Okay, Owen Wilson is actually a fascinating example of someone who's actually quite a famous movie star, but who genuinely keeps their private life 
absolutely mm-hmm. and completely private. Yes. I ask you, is he married? Does he have kids? Where does he live? Who are his famous celebrity friends? Like, I mean, in- I know now because I went on a deep dive, but I did not know previous to this evening. <laughs> okay, well, tell me. Because in thinking about Owen Wilson's pop culture moment, I realized that I literally know nothing about Owen Wilson. And I mean, I'm like an avid follower of celebrity pop culture. So is he married? He is not married, but he has three children by three different women and his daughter who was born last year he has not met and is like apparently refusing to meet and just has like came up with a custody agreement with the mother of the child and she's getting paid $25,000 a month in child support right so this is the thing like someone who has been famous for 25 years now and actually in a lot of successful films we don't know anything about Owen Wilson like he mm-hmm. he genuinely there are actors who say like oh I keep my private life private and then still will opportunistically call the paparazzi occasionally or you know give some sort of re- revealing tidbits in an interview with Esquire magazine to just stir up a bit of interest in whatever their project is he has never ever ever done that no one thing that did make the news though happened in August of 2007 on a Sunday afternoon It was reported that Owen Wilson tried to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. He took a bunch of pills and slit his wrists, apparently, and was admitted to a hospital in California. His brother, Luke Wilson, found him at his home. And I extensively researched this, and there's still no further information, really. No, there isn't. (laughs) He has never talked about it. You know, you have actresses who their mental health is just laid out on display and scrutinized and this is why I always found this so interesting the Owen Wilson thing is like people respected it and yeah you can't find too much about it it happened and then everybody you know moved on from it and they treated it with a certain respect where Mm. we see this happening to actresses and they just get completely ripped to shreds ripped to shreds in the media for their mental health and I think with almost anybody else any other movie star of that caliber and that fame like a suicide attempt would have been huge news it is really really crazy that it was like I don't know just swept under the rug and that he's Mm. just never talked about it Mm -hmm. Uh, so yes Sinclair why don't you tell us what is a hidden gem in Owen Wilson's filmography okay so this was really hard really hard yeah because all of his films are like successful yeah they are they're just like pretty known and even the ones that do didn't do necessarily well and were relatively mediocre are still pretty known so i had to take a stab in in the dark this week and and just Mm. watch one and that i hadn't heard of before this and it could be a hidden gem or it could be a hidden stinker either way it ended up just being a hidden mediocre whatever okay (laughs) yeah but you know it was interesting it's a movie called permanent midnight it's from 1998 i was looking at this because i looking through his filmography because you were creeping him midnight well i was creeping yes (laughs) and i was like what an interesting title so i did look this up ben stiller yeah, it's most well, it's mostly Ben Stiller, to be honest. Owen yeah. Wilson has a relatively small part in this. Elizabeth Hurley is in this, and I was reminded how beautiful yeah. she is, but how beautiful she was in the nineties. I know. Like absolute so, like, breathtaking. Stunner. 
Yeah. Quick synopsis via IMDb. A comedy writer struggles to overcome his addiction to heroin. This is based on the life of comedy writer Jerry Stahl, played by Ben Stiller, who was a TV writer for shows like Elf, 30-something, and Moonlighting. But he was a massive drug addict, and he was addicted to heroin, and this film depicts the highs and lows of his life and career, essentially. Hmm. It was interesting to see Ben Stiller play a drug addict. Yeah. Sometimes you you really believe it, and then other times you're like, oh, I don't quite mm-hmm. buy this. Owen Wilson, very small part in this. He plays a friend of Ben Stiller, who's also a drug addict. And Elizabeth Hurley is just in this looking amazing. She plays a woman <laughs> who he marries so he can so she can get a green card. Hmm. So beautiful. This movie's just pure '90s. It has Maria mm. Bello, Janine Garofalo. The soundtrack has Prodigy smack my bitch up. There's some everything. Okay, okay, like yeah. it's just, it's just so, so, so 90s. But it, it's all right. It's free to watch uh, if you have a, you know, an Amazon Prime membership. Mm. Yeah, Permanent Midnight. Hidden Mediocre this week. <laughs> Hidden Mediocre. <laughs> okay, well, there are a few up and coming projects for Owen Wilson. Oh, there's one that two. I'm so excited about. I'm probably not going to talk about it, but you can. I picked two that I thought were interesting. Well, actually, hold on, maybe. Is it the JLo one? No. Or is it Loki? Mm-hmm. Yes. It's Loki. Yeah, I don't care. So. <laughs> <laughs> but he's These on are the Loki. Two that I thought were interesting. Yeah. Okay. The Marvel series. So... Oh, my God. <laughs> There is a movie that is completed that I believe was probably supposed to come out this year, but has been pushed to 2021 called Marry Me. Here is the description via IMDb. Music superstars Kat Valdez and Bastion are getting married before a global audience of fans. But when Kat learns seconds before her vows that Bastion has been unfaithful, she decides to marry Charlie, a stranger in the crowd instead. Oh my god! Um, so Cat Valdez is Jennifer Lopez, and Charlie is Owen Wilson. Oh, this okay. is very meta. I love J Lo and her weddings. <laughs> I think that this looks incredibly entertaining, and it could either be really fun or just completely terrible. And then the second film is called Bliss. Here's the description via IMDb. A recently divorced guy falls for an enchanting woman's theory that they live in a harsh alternative world simulation inside of a beautiful, blissful reality. The reason that this intrigues me is it is written and directed by Mike Cahill, who works with Britt Marling mm-hmm. and wrote and directed Another Earth and some like really interesting sci-fi movies that I quite enjoy. So I'm very, very interested to see how Owen Wilson fits into this Mike Cahill world because it Mm. is pretty different from the stuff that he normally does. Mm -hmm. And Salma Hayek is in this as well. So, I mean, I definitely want to see this. I'm definitely intrigued. Well, Mm. the thing about Owen Wilson right now is, you know, he... (laughs) What is he? No, no, no. (laughs) I mean, he is a movie star, obviously. But, like, he... His archetype is, like happy-go-lucky slacker guy how does that he's also 52 years old like how does that roll forward yeah Mm -hmm. so it much in the same way as like a kate hudson or you know actresses that get kind of stuck in this like california sunny blonde vibe how does owen wilson transition into the next 25 years of his career Right. Yeah. He doesn't have a whole deep catalog of critically acclaimed films to draw from. So, yeah, I'm really interested to see what's coming up next. And perhaps that one that you just mentioned, Helen, um, will give us a glimpse. Mm. All right, guys, there's only one way to end this in focus segment. 
Owen Wilson. And that's to play a fun little game of marry, fuck, kill with his filmography. Edison, why mm-hmm. don't you go first? What film do you want to marry? It's the Royal Tenenbaums for me. This is just a dream world. It's my favorite movie on his filmography. I just want to marry someone and live in that huge magical home and have a bunch of kids. I know. Who are hopefully quite a bit less fucked up than these ones are. But <laughs> yeah, I love it. Helen, what about you? Same, same. I'm marrying Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, I want to live in that house. I want to be a rich family on the Upper East Side of, uh, or Upper West Side, whichever one, of uh, Manhattan. Like, yes, please. And the characters are just so fun. It's just like, yeah, I want to live in that world. Sinclair. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have to marry Midnight in Paris because Mm. I'm, you know what, I'm swept up in that atmosphere. I want to, you know, enjoy the 1920s and wear a flapper outfit and drink martinis and talk about art and hang out with Ernest Hemingway. It would be amazing. Mm -hmm. It would be. Okay, Edison, what film do you want to fuck? I'm going to fuck Midnight in Paris for all of those same reasons, Sinclair. I just think that that like roaring 20s in Paris is just so sexy. And everyone is like liberal and liberated and free. And I just, it's so fun and hot. Helen, what about you? I'm going to fuck Wedding Crashers. There are a lot. Well, first of all, there's a ton of sex in this movie. Mm -hmm. There's an entire montage of just boobs when they're having sex with all these women from these weddings. I mean, my number, well, not maybe not my number one, but high up on my list, Mr. Bradley Cooper. I hate the way he looks and I hate his character in this movie, but he's still in it. So yeah, wedding crushers. <laughs> Sinclair. I'm going to fuck Zoolander. <laughs> what? Because there's that scene where they drink the, the tea at Hansel's and have that wild, <laughs> wild orgy. Oh my God. You know, it looks fun and fashionable and... <laughs> a good time what? yeah okay sure. edison you have to kill one what's it gonna be i'm going to kill starskin hutch <laughs> okay. i just didn't uh, get okay. it i didn't get it you know how i am with comedies this one i just didn't find funny at all it has to die and a pointless mm-hmm. remake really a, yeah a totally pointless remake yeah helen um i think i've killed this movie before but i'm killing it again <laughs> i haven't seen it but <laughs> Um, I'm killing How Do You Know from 2010. You That's do. You always ki- you've killed this before. Because it's star-studded. I hate, the poster. So. I hate yeah. the poster. It's already so dead. Much. I know, but I'm killing it again. I just think that like it just looks like such a bad movie. And it's really star-studded, so you could kill it a bunch more times, too. It's so it. true. It's so true. But yeah, how do you know? If any of our listeners have seen this and think it's good, please tell me. Because I haven't actually seen it, but I, based off of poster alone, I just cannot. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to kill The Haunting. Okay, yeah. Because it, this this wasn't great. It's based off The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. She's one of my favorite horror writers. And I have already had a lot of uh, bastardizing of classic novels today so i'm gonna kill the haunting because i didn't think it was a very very good movie it wasn't but Catherine zeta jones in the haunting <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean and lily taylor yeah lily taylor is wonderful here like i don't think i could kill it just for them but you remember how it gets really cheesy it gets, it gets such, very, like, such cheese at the end oh pure yeah. pure utter cheese 
Yeah. <laughs> so dead. Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie to Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes. Go to our website, talkmovietomepodcast.com. And please become a Patreon if you have it in your heart to do so. We would really appreciate it. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. Thanks. Ugh. <laughs>